the Home Bodies Yoga Podcast, and I'm Rebecca Hirsch, and this is our 34th episode. In this podcast, I ask people what they do when they unroll their yoga mat and tell you a little bit about what's going on on mine. If you have a question about your yoga practice or a suggestion for a guest, please email me at rebecca at homebodiesyoga.com. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram at homebodiesyogapodcast. To find out more about each show, please go to our website, homebodiesyoga.com. If you're enjoying the show, please rate and review and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And especially important to subscribe around the holidays because I will be taking a little bit of a break uh, sort of at the end of December. So um, yeah, you don't want to miss the episode when I come back in January. So please make sure that you subscribe. It also really helps people find the show. Also, if you wanted to rate and review while you were subscribing, that'd be really helpful. Anyway, I'm very excited today because I have a wonderful guest, uh, Mary Dana Abbott. Um, She feels funny to just say she's a yoga instructor because she's like an extremely experienced professional, you know, like this is her, her profession for the last, I think it has to be 20 years. Uh, It actually doesn't say anywhere in her bio and I didn't ask in our interview, but I, it's got to be 20 years because I've known her for 10 and I think by then she was teaching for 10. So at least 20, probably more. And not only is she a teacher to students, but she teaches other teachers how to teach. Um, just really wonderful at what she does. Um, yeah, I, I think I was thinking about like, I have the, the, this like sense from Mary Dana of just like warmth and kindness. And this sounds, I was thinking about this before I started recording. It sounds like sort of it sounds kind of sad to say but I I think it's true and I don't think it's sad she was the first teacher I think where I felt like oh a a teacher can be like warm and and, like kind to me personally um which is kind of funny because I do feel like some of my earlier teachers before her I feel very attached to but I don't think they had the same kind of like warmth and just like love that Mary Dean had not not in a way that's inappropriate just this sense of like Oh, like kindness really uh, sort of seeps out of her and like she's very good at what she does also like really amazing at sequencing and just kind of has this sense of the body I think from being a dancer and from just studying it so much studying the body so much of just like how to put the body together and how to put um, yoga practices together that make the body feel complete and whole and like it's this one piece uh, which is really interesting because we were talking a lot in our interview about Katona yoga, which is kind of like a newer practice. I don't know. Uh, maybe it's not newer. I guess it's newer to me, newer in my world. Um, and just a, and Katona yoga kind of has that same thing as this thingy of the body as a whole. But we'll get all into all that in the interview. Um, really interesting. This interview will be especially interesting if you are a yoga teacher yourself. I feel like Mary Dana has just a lot of good insights for yoga instructors but also for anyone I think she has a lot of insight just about the practice in general that could be really helpful to hear Um, she's also a a recently certified Pilates instructor and and you can sort of sense that from her awareness of the body I feel like something that Pilates instructors always feel like do well is have this like real awareness of the body and the way it's made (laughs) you know and how to kind of like create a practice that I don't know, finds the body, really helps you find your body and be inside your body, I guess. I don't know. I hope that makes sense. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe that means you need to take a Katona yoga or a Pilates class from Mary Dana and then you'll get it, I guess. Um, yeah, I, before we get into Mary Dana, though, I wanted to talk a little bit about meditation because it's something I've really been committed to. Uh, sometimes it's meditation where I'm laying down <laughs> just in my bed, but I'm committed to meditating every day one way or the other. Um, and it's something that's been bugging me in my meditation because like, oh, man, can I get annoyed when I meditate lately? Is that, you know, my mind will do this thing where it'll find this small problem a dumb problem you know a silly kind of not important but a problem I couldn't even remember right now and it'll say like okay we'll meditate but first we have to find the solution to this problem right like right now like I'm not going to be able to you can't I'm not going to be able to relax until until I find the solution to this problem and my mind is like going and going and then all of a sudden you know I'm not meditating and I try to come back but my mind's like no I have to find the solution to this problem (laughs) and it's a silly problem but like you know whatever uh so lately I've been just kind of like instead of getting mad about it 
kind of in the spirit of actually this interview with Mary Diana, we talk a lot about curiosity. I've been just getting kind of curious, like, huh, like, where is this coming from? Like, where, where do I feel this problem? Like, where do I feel this issue in my brain? And I notice that I always feel kind of the silly problems that my mind thinks it needs to solve in the front of my brain, like right, like at my forehead and around my face and eyebrows. Which is kind of interesting because it's like kind of a cliche that teachers say is like relax your face, like let go of your jaw. But I do feel like kind of the front of my brain is where I keep all those silly problems that don't allow me to get into a deeper meditation. So I've been trying to like say to myself when those like silly problems come up, instead of like arguing with it, like, no, we don't need to solve that problem right now or solve the problem. I just think like, okay, settle, like let yourself go to the back, like settle down, like reach to the back, <laughs> soften to the back of the brain. And I find it really helpful. The other word I've been really saying to myself lately is like, okay, unclench, <laughs> which I know it sounds like actually like kind of intense, but like, I just feel like for some reason during meditation, you know, that's when my mind sort of clenches up. So I'll be like, okay, unclench. And it's actually been helpful. It helps at least with the frustration. Like, and, you know, I, of course, still get distracted, but I'm finding myself able to get back into the meditation a little bit faster. I don't know. It's probably even cliche to say. I don't really know if other people have said this, but I imagine they have. Which is kind of interesting that I could feel different thoughts in different parts of my brain. Um, anyway, in meditation insights. Um, but back to Meridina. Um yeah, actually, there were a lot of really good insights in this interview, and I think you'll really enjoy it. Um, I wanted to read just a part of her bio so you know kind of where to find her. Mary Dana believes a yoga practice is about unleashing everyone's potential for a more joyous and radiant life. Known for her disciplined and accessible manner, she approaches her specialties in the practice, alignment, sequencing, and hands-on adjustments with precision, grace, and humor. Uh, and then it goes on to say, uh, Mary Dana has taught public classes and led workshops all over the world. Uh, she's ERYT 500 certified and has trained hundreds of teachers at the 200 level and beyond. Uh, she's a certified Katona yoga teacher. And you might actually know Mary Dana if you ever went to Laughing Lotus from New York Laughing Lotus. Um, she was the co-director and senior teacher there for years. Uh, okay, so without further ado, here is Mary Dana. Well, welcome, Mary Dana. Thank you so much for being here. Um, and I just want to jump right in because I've seen um, a little, gotten a taste a little bit of what your practice is like from Instagram, but not enough. So I'm just mm -hmm. curious, what is your practice like right now? My practice right now is usually a little restorative. Um, and also I do Pilates as part of my practice too. Um, and pranayama, I mean, I put, kind of I put that into, I mean, it's not a restorative practice pranayama so much, but it is in terms of it being, you know, in a way like kind of exploring the container of the body with the imagination, um, setting myself up or oneself up well with props and also it's like, it's not just always so prop oriented, um, with the story practice though, it can be, I do a lot of chair work, but it can be more, it's simple. That's probably the, the, the easiest thing, the, the, how I would define it the most is there's a simplicity to my home practice. Cause if it was too complex and I've been here before and like, I've bring too much of a to-do list of what I have to do, I won't do it. <laughs> you know, so it's, 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 it's probably a little more simple, sometimes a little shorter than one might expect just because in this time I'm doing so much yoga online too, you know, so there is always, I think too much of a good thing. <laughs> that makes sense. So yeah, restoratives, chair, and a little Pilates, which during the pandemic, I actually got Pilates mat certified. And I'm starting to teach that a little bit more. So I'm integrating it into what I'm doing. I, um, that's so interesting. All three of those things are things I'm getting more and more interested in myself. So I have a lot of questions already. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, I have heard of pranayama done a lot of different ways, um, sometimes seated, um, sometimes in a restorative pose, sort of laying down. Is there a certain position you usually practice pranayama in? 
Honey, I'm our breath work. I usually practice sitting in Virasana. Mm-hmm. You know, there might be some that I incorporate in like a restorative bridge where, you know, my legs are up on a chair, but mostly if I'm doing like a set pranayama in a way sequence or breath work sequence, um, I'm usually sitting in Virasana on a block with a sandbag <laughs> over my thighs. So that's mm-hmm. pretty much how I set up that, that practice. Yeah. Yeah. A little weight to be a little bit weighted down. Right. So in a way, bringing you down to earth. I love that. I've never thought to use a sandbag in that way, but that feels like it would be how really help to uh, the, the weight would also help you sort of lengthen and make mm-hmm. more space. Yeah. Yeah. And it helps to, you know, thinking of the, and we'll probably get into this, but thinking of the lower body as sort of our ground floor and our stability and even it being in a way, not in a way, but it is the heaviest part, more dense part of our body. And it helps to sort of soothe and, and, I know, especially with everything always moving around and life feeling even more and more fast paced. Maybe that's a, a sign of age or just for everyone. Um, it's nice to be weighted down a little bit. I kind of want to try one of those weighted blankets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're amazing. But if also sandbags can be kind of hard to find and expensive to order because they're so heavy. So I recommend getting a sandbag and then filling it not with sand because that can get really messy, but rice. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Because you can get them real cheap if they're not filled and then you can fill them up. If you fill them up with sand, you know, you have to live near place that has sand and it it gets it it, sand can get very messy very quickly so can rice but you know it's a little more containable that's a really interesting idea um and then it's interesting to me because i i've taken your classes years and years ago but i i've actually taken a couple of your classes more recently and when let's see i think of your sequencing as it, I guess in essence, it's simple, but it, because it's not in a way I usually move my body, it seems complex to me. Um, so it, 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 would you say that your the your home practice is similar to the your, the, your sequences or, or is it even simpler when you're practicing alone? Yeah, it's way simpler. Um, I, if I'm doing like a, a real home practice, as opposed to like, you know, playing around to teach, right? It's almost a different type of practice altogether. Um, you know, because in in a class, we're really playing in a communal sense, right? We're playing well with others in a, in a way there's, you know, you're not by yourself on your mat. And even on the Zoom room in a way, um, you're you're engaging in a group dynamic, even though you might not be by yourself at home. Uh, or you might be by yourself at home. Um, So it's almost a different type of practice altogether. And home practice or teacher's practice or, you know, just personal practice, you can call it many different things, I think is more about, I love this metaphor, tuning your instrument and group practice and the way I sequence for classes that you might take online or back in the day at Lotus SF are, um, you know, playing with an orchestra playing in a band, playing with others. So that being said, they're completely different, but thematically there's often crossover, right? Mm -hmm. What we're working on in one is what we're working on in the other. Just like if you were to play an instrument and you knew a piece that you were going to have was heavy in minor keys, right? You would then, you know, play in minor keys in your practice. So, you know, there's, there's crossover, but there are different items on the menu, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. And I'll be honest. Yeah. The class that I teach, I've been thinking about this in the, in, you know, in, in the pandemic, the classes that I usually teach, it depends because I, you know, it's like you have you you meet the community that you're in. But you know, I teach online. I teach sometimes at the studio. I teach at a, a yoga studio in Brooklyn. But then I also teach at Equinox, and so I teach kind of like a practice, a vinyasa esque merge with Katona theory practice that I would have 
love to do great if that's what you want you know it's not and it's not like we don't sweat in my class too they're kind of they're they're still they're physical but there's an intention behind them that they don't break down your body so much yeah uh, um i'll never forget i like taught a class once and someone said to me after like oh like and they were happy about it but someone said to me after like oh that killed me and I actually, I felt terrible. I was like, that's not what a yoga practice is supposed I mean, it took me years to realize that wasn't a compliment, I guess, but I was like, that's terrible. That's not what this is for. Right. <laughs> you know, like we want right. you to feel great after and <laughs> ready for your life. And I think like that was probably meant as a high compliment. Right. I've, I, I like, well, you know, I, I, I've gotten that, you know, compliment or comment we can call um, it yeah. um, before. Yeah. And I have the same sort of reaction, you know, I'm like, well, I don't want to, I don't want to break you down. And I know from like, there was a shift in my own practice when, and this was probably when I was, you know, kind of on the way out of Lotus, um, where I was like, I, it, there, if you're going to class and like, you can't wait for pigeon or Shavasana, like if you can't wait to sit down or lie down then it's not necessarily a bad thing and it's not necessarily a wrong thing because, you know, there are endorphins and things that happen from exhausting the body that we might perceive as good, but my body was just worn out, you know, and running around and teaching and adding that onto it. And also it was too much. And then also the practice wasn't designed for insight. It was more like a way to escape or to have a moment. It was almost like you're chasing like a high, you know, and, and like, I just wouldn't get that same sort of high anymore by moving real quickly in vinyasa sequences with, um, you know, without sort of taking a moment to recognize where I was in time and space. And it doesn't mean you can't, I don't flow or you can't flow or I'm against flow, but they're not at all. I think that you can definitely, you know, flow with purpose and intention and, you know, sequence with that way. There's a, there's a way to like sort of bridge the gap because I think like if we get too, you know, kind of, well, there's, slow practices and fast practices, right? And, and if we have all these preconceived notions about what those are, then one who gravitates to one might, you know, never try the other, right? It, and it's, you know, it's an interesting sort of world to play when where two types of practices meet instead of thinking that there's one way or the other way and you do your type of yoga and everybody else does theirs. You know, do you know what I mean? So it's like, yeah. it's, it's, um, you know, it's an interesting world also with the expectation of practice and the expectations that we have as teachers and as students and we meet teachers and we meet students' expectations. Um, and I don't mean meet them that we, you know, definitely like change our offering to meet them, but actually like meeting like a conversation. Like knowing that, so like in Equinox, I know that my classes, you know, sometimes people expect flow. So I'm not going to say don't flow. I'm going to figure out how we can, you know, interject some theory and good techniques into the flow so that people get the best of both worlds. I like that because I think it can be sort of difficult as a yoga instructor to know what your role is. Um, mm -hmm. Like, because, you know, there's like the sort of guru role where it's like, you do what I say and I know it's best for you. And then there's the role where you're like, you know, they're your client and it's like, I provide a service and it should be the service you want. But what you're kind of saying is like, maybe there can be a middle ground between, <laughs> you know, a sort of like, here's what you expect. And I can give you some of that, but also here's something you might not expect that might be interesting for you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, you know, you're, you're, you, cause if you, if you don't like allow yourself to meet people with, you know, your expectations and their expectations, like really engage in, you know, it, it's more of a metaphorical conversation. Like you're not stopping and necessarily chatting like, hi, what do you expect from my class today? Well, here's <laughs> what I do, but, but more like being able to really, you know, as a teacher, really developing an eye and developing an eye as a teacher means you're listening 
to what bodies are doing as you instruct them, you know, and also reading body language. And we can, you know, go too far with that. And I think as teachers, um, we've all been there where there's been that person in class that seems like sort of agitated or frustrated or doesn't seem to like what you're doing. And we can like, all our attention is pulled towards that person. I think it's like very human, right? And and that's not what I mean. You don't have to change to like make sure everybody loves you. But at the same time, like be very centered and secure in who you are so that you can, you know, know that what you are saying makes sense. Um, also have a sense of joy about what you're saying too. And, and like, you know, let it be, create a, an atmosphere in a way of levity because then you're creating an atmosphere for people to be more receptive rather than being like, do this. Cause I say it so, cause it's the right way. Right. And everything you do is wrong. And I'm here to tell you that I have the right way. That's like the guru thing. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm definitely not a guru. And, you know, I and I don't even impose any sort of hierarchical structure in my classes. I'm there to give information that I find useful and also learn to see if it's actually useful. You know, but yeah, it, it's a it's an interesting it's, it's an interesting dynamic. And I think we have to stay, I, I think it's it to one's advantage as a teacher to stay kind of open to the process of this idea of conversation, learning from not only your teachers and your practice, but also really learning from the actual action and activity of teaching. Yeah. And that, I, I think that that would make teaching so much more interesting. And I don't know, I always find curiosity about anything, make something better, you know? <laughs> 100%. I think that's really like the word, right? Cause you stay curious. Curiosity is really, I think, how to have an open mind You know, you stay very curious to things open about it. And so much more than we were talking about having open hearts and open minds. And like, I think that's a real big ingredient in that um, the practice of that is to stay curious. Mm. Speaking of that, I just, I feel like um, someone who's been practicing as long as you has had so many lifetimes of yoga, like so many different lives of yoga. Um, And I'm just curious, like, can we talk just a little bit about your journey and the types of yoga and the yogis you've been and (laughs) the yogis you'll be? (laughs) Exactly. I know. I don't know. There's not many types of yoga that I haven't done. Um, I started out as a kid doing the little Hatha with my dad um, as a dancer in my late teens and early twenties. I took some class. I don't really remember, but I think they were like early forms of vinyasa. And then the first time I really got into yoga as a young adult was Bikram. Mm -hmm. And it was just when it opened in New York. And I was like, I was like obsessed with it. And I would go like twice a day because I bought like a year membership from my roommate who didn't want it anymore. So I got like a year membership for like $300. Um, And then when that ran out and also was kind of getting my body was injured because it was like, you know, stretched to the max you know, do in the, you're also in the heat. So that's a little um, disingenuous to really, you know, how far your body should go. And, um, you know, I started seeking other types out and I then went, my gym at the time had like teachers from Jiva Mukti. And so I went to Jiva Mukti for a while, study with Sharon and David whenever I had the money. I also went to Om Yoga with Cindy Lee. And then eventually around 2004, I found Laughing Lotus and wasn't even immediately like a daily practitioner there. In fact, in those days, I already had like a a home practice, like even from, even in the Bikram days, I sought out books and I would read, you know, uh, these books, power yoga and beyond power yoga and power yoga, who knows who coined that term because it was either like Brian Kest or Baron Baptiste, or really, I think Beryl Bender Birch who wrote these might have predated them a little bit, but who knows? And her, she was an Ashtangi and she really ran like this, um, this like program 
like after studying in India, she came back to New York and probably missing a few things. And she ran like a program for runners, but then wrote these books about the eight limbs and the primary series. And I was like fascinated by this. This is my first introduction into the philosophy. And then I would also, who else was, I, I think I did read also Baron Baptiste book too. And so I was making up all these sequences and practice, trying to practice primary series. I was like an Ashtangi for like five minutes. And then the natural progression with, to that was, was Lotus. Did my training there, started teaching there about a year after, but even, you know, I always was seeking knowledge. So, you know, I started to dabble a little bit in Anusara and then Iyengar and then, um, Katona. So, you know, a few different, a few different styles there. And I think I, I love it because teaching trainings and, you know, traveling, which I did for a long time, and we'll start to do maybe a little bit more next year. I kind of have an idea. Sometimes if someone's studying in a particular style, I can, I know where they're coming from a little bit. I have a little knowledge. It doesn't, I'm not an expert by any stretch of the imagination, but it allows for that conversation piece, you know, to, to be like, Oh, I, I, I know where that comes from. I know what the theory is behind that. And yeah, it's cool. And then here's the theory that I teach and here's what I like to do in that same sort of construct. Let's see if, um, you know, we can play together with it, you know, a little bit. Cause that's what I've encountered too with teaching and traveling is sometimes when, you know, maybe teach something. And then I don't want to say a new way because it's not really a new way, right? It's like everything is sort of borrowed and recycled and everything now is open source. So, but then somebody will say to me, well, I've been doing it wrong all these years. And that's not true. Like, it's just, this is another angle that I'm maybe presenting to you, if that makes sense. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I, I, I think, I think, you know, a part of teaching is like, and on myself included when I'm a student, is like people are fragile <laughs> and it's very nice when you can say something they recognize and very nice to also say like, no, like the perspective, you know, is right too in a different way. And, <laughs> and that's, you know, I think that's the importance of like not being a guru is like saying like, oh, there are other perspectives and like what you're doing is all right too. And you could try this way if you wanted. <laughs> right, right. Because then like you're more creating the conditions for what is tried to be then maybe explored a little bit more, not necessarily taken as, you know, the gospel, because that's certainly not what I want to do when I'm teaching is like, you know, this is the right way, but like there's an invitation to explore. And I think as teachers, that's like a good, a good goal to have you know, an invitation to explore your practice, explore doing things the way you do them, doing things a different way, all of it, you know, and, and being, and allowing someone else to find that sense of curiosity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I definitely have that sense in Katona yoga. I think partly because a lot of the things in Katona yoga are different than I'm used to doing. And that helps mm-hmm. me pay attention and be sort of curious. Um, so I guess, so we had Prima on the show and he got me like sort of interested in Katona, just him talking about it. And then I, now I've taken a few classes and I'm just curious, like what draw you to Katona yoga? And like, can we talk just a little bit about like, why you're passionate about it. <laughs> sure. Absolutely. Um, I started practicing Tony, I think about six years ago. Um, you know, a lot of my friends had, were doing it, were like, everyone was doing it. Right. But my friends had gotten into it a little bit sooner. And finally I kind of made my way there and, you know, really enjoyed the, um, the, the, the details of the practice, like the small details of exploring the body and kind of, you know, traveling through the body in different corners of it, seeing the body as a house, the metaphors. And also, um, I really liked how it's a practice of exploring our well-being and also our peace in a bigger world and how we can contribute to our communal well-being through it. And uh, some of that is also 
going back to what you were saying before, like how people see different things and different angles, that's really in the theory is like what we see is true based on the frame, our frame of reference and our frame of reference comes from our inheritance, where we grew up. I don't mean inheritance like money or any, but I mean like where we came from, who we came from. Um, And you know, our frame of reference really is built on a lot of those different things. And then somebody else has a completely different frame of reference. And that's, you know, everybody thinks like they're on the right side of history. <laughs> you know, every, you know, everybody thinks that. Um, and, you know, I certainly believe that certain things are right. And I, but I recognize that other people think completely differently. And, you know, I don't think that's a defeat to recognize the different points of view that we have. I think it's the, it's the first step to actually being able to go back to what we were talking about earlier, have a larger conversation, even about bigger issues in the world. And, you know, it's a physical so much more. I think like yoga practices are so much more, that's not inherently Katona, um, but Katona yoga, I think allows us to really explore our whole being, even the parts that are, you know, that we tend to disengage from, even the parts of ourselves that we, you know, don't know that well, because, you know, we explore that the the whole is always greater than the sum of its parts, rather than, you know, exploring things piecemeal and like, you know, I'm going to, well, I'm going to fix my right hip and then everything's going to be okay. Right. And there's my left hands all messed up. Oh, then I keep doing this over and over again. It's like, it'll, the tools and the maps and the techniques allow you to see all of that for what it is, but allow all of that to come into a healthy whole rather than, you know, a piece that's loose in the body, like an injury. And not all injuries are, you know, necessarily mechanisms of being loose. In fact, there's a lot of injuries that are the opposite, right? Because we're always, you know, mediated in polarity. But instead of, you know, that is an opportunity to bring the injured piece into a healthy whole body, instead of like starting to compensate everything for the injury. And that's a body example, but we can also start to work on that in other corners of our lives. And then we, you know, then we, I think, you know, maybe this is true. And by the way, everything I say, I don't necessarily think it's a hundred percent true for everyone. This is just the way, this is my frame of reference right now. And that can completely evolve and change always with new information. But, you know, we might have, you know, some, some like habit or pattern of, you know, behavior. We all have it that, you know, doesn't serve in our best interest, doesn't serve us in, our overall vision or goal in the world. And instead of just like letting that kind of go on autopilot, autopilot, the practice allows us to illuminate that part and organize ourselves differently and bring that in instead of allowing that piece or that habit to constantly pull us out, pull us away. If that makes sense. Yeah, I that's something I really like about uh, the Catonia, which I, I honestly, it's very strange because I feel really great after and my mind feels really good and I feel very solid, but I have no idea why. That's like sort of at the heart of at the end, I'm just like, oh, that's magic. I'm not sure what just happened and I feel great. Okay, <laughs> that's like my experience with Catonia yoga right now. So I, I have nothing uh, interesting, like I couldn't explain why, um, but I do really like uh, I've always thought of the body as a metaphor. I'm like a very physical learner. Mm. Um, and it does feel to me, it's nice to have it explicit in the class mm. to, for me. Like I like to hear ex- like, because it, it the explicitness in the body talking about this metaphor explicitly, it helps me understand my mind. Mm. Cause I have a hard, t- I, I've talked about this on the podcast before, but like, I don't, I daydream, but I don't often have like deep, I don't think I often have deep thoughts, if that makes Mm. sense. Like, it's not how I process. Like, I don't think and it's figured out. It's like in my body figured out. So I I feel like it's, Katoni's yoga sort of like made for that kind of, it feels ideal for me in a way that it feels like meditative, I guess. Right. 
Yeah. And also any sort of, you know, any, we, our body is where we wear everything. Like we wear Mm. our habits, we wear our patterns. Um, you know, if we, you wear in some way, like, and I'm, I'm talking like, you know, in a way we wear our bodies or our bodies, our container, our house, um, you know, everything that you just said is probably in your embodied patterns. This is not a judgment. And, 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 you know, I also think too, that that's important for teaching is moving away from a right and wrong paradigm. Of course, I believe there are techniques that are better than others, but like, if we get too rigid about that, then it's reflective in also, you know, how we perceive ourselves. And, you know, it's like, it's, we don't want to get in. I think it's a disservice if we start thinking of certain parts of ourselves as being wrong. Mm. Right. And then certain techniques are, you know, going to save us just by virtue of the technique. The technique is the, is powerful to affect change, but it, it, they don't necessarily right wrongs rather than they allow us to help us change course. Mm. Like, for example, let's say that we, one has a habit and I've, I've been here and this is one of my habits. I think, um, not so much anymore because I've done a lot of practice with it, but, you know, almost like uh, I can be a little fiery and, you know, and, you know, I'm very cerebral. And so I can react sometimes to, you know, and kind of like not take a moment and take a step back before I open my mouth, (laughs) like, and just having that, having a, and that's in the physic and that's in your physicality. Right. And that's in my physicality too. Like, you know, I, I sometimes would just, my torso would be in front of my legs, right. Mm-hmm. Cause you, you're a step ahead of the ground underneath you and working that with that in an embodied sense allows you to be really powerful. It doesn't mean that you stop necessarily being reactive. It doesn't mean reactive is necessarily always bad because, you know, again, we categorize these things as good or bad. We lose sight that oftentimes what we perceive as bad is reflective of what is good and vice versa. Like there's always a yin and yang, right. Or yin and yang. Um, But the practice and techniques allow you and you know we can look at different techniques like pranayama or breath work as temperature regulation so when you get heated up you know how to cool yourself off and it's very sneaky or just taking you know meaning that no one has to know what you need to do this is one of my favorite teachings from Naveen right and also that what what she teaches is that yoga is very powerful like this is an it's empowering when you don't let your strengths get the best of you. And, you know, you can work with breath work. You can work with asana work, learn how to plug into yourself. Like really, and we divide the body into three floors. So it's also ground floor work, right? If, if your ground is behind you and you're constantly in front of it, then learn how to take a step back to be really present. And it's actually, there's stepping back and stepping forward, but really it's learning how to center yourself well. And then it gives you pause. And that's been a really effective, I think, technique is taking that pause. Like if things aren't going great on customer service, like if you're on the phone, like, no, it's not the person's fault, you know? And like, if you're reactive to that person, like it's not going to solve anything, right? It's not going to make any situation better. Um, You know, let's say things aren't going well in a personal work or a work relationship or even a personal relationship. It's learning how to sometimes write the email, but not press send. (laughs) I mean, that's been such a great practice because then you look at your email the next day, you're like, I can't believe I almost sent this. Like, like, it's like, you know, and it's like, it's when we forget that hindsight, like really is such a great uh, reminder of how some of our thoughts and feelings are so temporal. They're so temporary and they're so of the moment. 
And that's another reason why in Katoni Yoga, we might steer away from even teaching from feeling, meaning that you should feel this in this pose. You should feel that in that pose. There's physiological reasons why I ascribe to that mostly because, or one of the reasons is that, you know, working with, um, working with bodies for long and for so long and seeing where a lot of injuries come from, you know, sometimes we end up chasing feelings and stretching and overstretching is like a big problem in, 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 in these practices. Like there's too many hip replacements going, having to happen. There's too many knee replacements. Oh, most of my knee injuries are from stretch, you know, straight legs, you know? So it's, 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 just going by feeling sometimes doesn't give us the insight. We're chasing the feeling. That being said, feelings can also be part of the picture. You can use them as information, especially if you know how to recognize that they're temporary. One of my other teachers, Abby, one thing she said, one is, you know, feelings are very real, but they're often not realistic. <laughs> and so they could be very realistic in that moment. It could feel like the realest thing, but, you know, in hindsight gives us clarity. And what if we can tap into that clarity sooner? And that is practice. And I think that is one of the, uh, a practice that can make one, you know, very powerful in their own embodiment in their own surroundings, in their own communities. Because then it's it's you as a part of the community, right? When you're conversing with others, whether it's through an email or whether it's, you know, on the phone with somebody you don't know, you are engaging and interacting with other human beings. Yeah, and that, you know, that's like the hard part, right? Is the interaction with other people. It's pretty easy just on your map by yourself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes yeah. but it's also like and that's who probably in it, it, it's funny like, too i'm sorry i get i get I, I love talking about this so excuse me i'm talking go so on much. please um, that's the point <laughs> so but also like that it's it, it's also a reflection of your own inner dialogue like your dialogues with other people do reflect your own inner dialogue mm-hmm. you know and it's it's i think like there's there's definitely an intersection there that is worth exploring. Yeah. It's funny what you're saying, because one thing I've noticed recently, just kind of being more create, being more curious in my practice, Kutoni yoga, and and just, just being curious in my own practice. It's like uh, interesting that I have this, it's almost like a nervous tick to Mm. do vinyasa, like all the time, like between every, you know, it's like, it's like um, a tick, you know, it's, it has nothing to do with actually needing to do one or my body feeling like I need it or anything like that. And it's so interesting because I feel like I have that same tendency, you know, to like obsessively do this thing. Like, you know, like I will try to do the same thing over and over, you know, like just, just until it works. Right or until it never works. Um, So it's just interesting that those two, it is kind of your practice really can, I think for me personally, my practice can sometimes reflect things that go on, um, which is really hard to notice when I'm moving really quickly in like a Mm -hmm. more vinyasa practice. You know, I don't kind of, because it actually encourages those ticks (laughs) in a way, you know? (laughs) Yeah, just flow through it, you know, just kind of move through it. Yeah. And, and, you know, the way we do uh, one thing is the way we can do everything. And that's both a blessing and a curse because one, like, it's like, oh, here I go again. <laughs> like, uh, here I go again, over and over again, you know, seeing things through over and over again. It's not just, you know, it, it's also seeing yourself do the same things over and over again. But it also means that if you change one thing, then you can effectively maybe start to change a lot of things, Mm. you know, because one thing can give you an anchor. It's one of the reasons why, you know, I'll use cueing in my, um, in all of my classes, I try to find a few things that are similar, but work with them and 
in in the whole you know arc of the class and the different practices and postures that we do because it really is like in a way the same thing over and over again going back to there's a simplicity to it and there is a simplicity to the way i sequence because if it was new all the time i'd go crazy <laughs> you know it was just like i wouldn't be able to keep up with it there is a definite order and a structure that I work with that I pretty much just kind of cycle through new information or recycled old information in, in new ways. Um, and I, you know, somebody's going to get the insight maybe somewhere and somebody else is going to get it somewhere else. Right. But maybe like, so the same cue, um, you know, might work for someone to have like an, oh, I sit in my heels. That might be in their like wide straddle forward bend for someone, but it might be in, you know, like a seated forward bend for someone else, right? In terms of having that insight and, you know, sitting in the heels, we also use metaphor a lot and directional metaphor and directional metaphor is something I think that, and not just, I think, but you know, there's a lot of philosophy out there that really guides our whole existence. And even, you know, up has, even the word up has so many different connotations to it that are like positive, like things are on the up. I'm on cloud nine. Like, you know, we're, we're heading upward and then down has more negative connotation to metaphorically. Like I'm in the depths of despair. I'm in the dumps, um, you know, spiraling down. And also metaphor physically, like what does it mean to drag one's heels, right? And if like you're in your heels a lot, you might be one that drags your heels. You know, it also might be that you, you just are so, you might not drag your heels, but you're, it could either be one thing doesn't mean one thing all the time. One thing is one thing and you need to connect the dots to other things to really get a broader picture because one has no dimension to it. So somebody could be in their heels a lot because they sit in their heels a lot. They sit a lot and somebody could like be in their heels as a reaction to being exhausted, like, uh, like the, you know, like the uh, like going, 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 and then just exhausting themselves. Right. And there could be different elements there. Like the heels could be drier. They could, you know, have, it could be a little dryness to it. There could be like, like, you can start to see like some details in the body. And then, you know, when you're playing with different elements, like, you know, how do we tend to the water so that dryness doesn't, you know, get the best of us? Mm. It could just mean we need more lotion. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, sometimes it's not so deep. It depends. Right, right. Like, it, it is and it isn't. Like, we can, we because if we, do, it, it very well, and it, there is a depth that is available to everyone. But I think also it is, we can become presumptuous about what everything means. And that might make us lose our curiosity. Yeah. And actually, I think I've been thinking about this a lot. I think that presumption is a real trap for newer in yoga instructors. I think because maybe often, I think as a newer yogi, you're attracted to uh, someone who seems like they are very confident in what they're saying, um, for better or worse. And I think then sometimes newer instructors get sort of trapped in that same, uh, they want to give that same sense of confidence to their students. Like, I don't think it's a mean thing. I don't, I don't think it's, I think they mean, well, it's well in touch. I think I did the same thing, but they're sort of copying their teachers and then they end up uh, yeah, being kind of presumptuous about the needs of their students in, in a way and less curious. Uh, and mm -hmm. I wonder, like, and, and another thing you said before, um, you were talking about, you know, this ability to see a lot of different perspectives. And, and I think that comes from teaching longer, too, and knowing that, you know, there's no, you know, real hard and fast rules. Mm -hmm. Is there a way to skip that and just be a new teacher who doesn't do that? <laughs> I wish that I had known. <laughs> well, I th that is, this is very interesting territory because I think as a new 
teacher, you ha- you want to grasp onto some certainty because there's so much uncertainty there. Like it makes perfect sense to to like want to you know you're a, you're nervous and in the room. I remember my first class. I like wanted to like leave the room and go smoke a cigarette. I had been a former smoker and I hadn't had that like urge in the longest time. I remember that. And I said to my mentor, should I ever do it again? And then it was like, you know, years of that. And even as you, I wouldn't say that I necessarily get nervous anymore. Although like, you know, maybe it's like a completely new scenario. And, um, you know, I did actually, when I auditioned to teach Pilates, I, that was the first time I had nerves and like, I was searching for like concreteness, like having like, you know, having material that you could, you know, really stand by when you feel new, you know, you don't want people to know that you're new. And so, you know, you want to maybe say something that, you know, is true. And so you might hold on to that as truth, even though, you know, I think it takes, I think it also takes, um, time to be comfortable with being like vulnerable enough with what you know to constantly allow it to be challenged in a way that doesn't feel like it's diminishing you you know and I see like I see it in a lot of I I, that's like a newer teacher perspective but you know I've seen that in even more senior teachers when when you know somebody presents a question that is unfamiliar territory to them and it almost, I've seen the answer to that question. I've seen this in many types of teachers and it's perfectly human. They just want to kind of diminish the material of the question as not being important to what they're teaching. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think that on both sides of the spectrum, more advanced and seasoned and senior teachers like we can get too stuck in our methods that we don't want to entertain information that may possibly challenge it and then as newer teachers we've just learned a method so we don't know how to entertain anything that challenges it <laughs> you know it's like it's it, and and the the re, the reaction to the question could be exactly the same Mm-hmm. on both on both sides of that sort of invented polarity um so how do newer teachers do that I don't I don't know like one of the you know and, and I've had my out with Dana Flynn a long time but she did give me one of the best advice I mean not out like there's no drama there but you know I, I don't teach Laughing Lotus anymore and Laughing Lotus doesn't exist anymore. I'm very sorry to hear about Laughing Lotus San Francisco too. Like I love going and teaching to teaching there, but she said, um, and this was like in 2005, it's, it's, you know, allow yourself to be new mm-hmm. as a teacher, like really just allow yourself to be new at it. And I think that's hard for us to do because then it's like, well, why would anybody want to come to our classes if we're new? But it allows us then to, you know, be in conversational state with what we're teaching rather than being scared that it won't hold up. Because I think on both ends of the spectrum of senior teacher and newer teacher, fear when new information is presented is the thing on both mm. ends. Yeah. Yeah. So it's almost like be willing to be vulnerable and, and just, yeah. Cause there's a vulnerability to allowing inf- new information in. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Um, oh, it's so interesting th- your journey with Pilates because I feel like the, the sense I've gotten from your classes is so similar to Pilates where there's this like sense of length, mm. like, like just from Pilates and from your, your yoga classes, there's a sense of just like, length, but still coming from the center, mm-hmm. uh, but kind of in a nuanced way, not like doing core work, but like this, right. I can feel my arms and my legs are coming from my body, like in Pilates. So it's so interesting that you're a Pilates instructor now too. I wouldn't be nervous at all. I bet you're great at it, honestly. <laughs> well, the, the audition part was nervous. Yeah. Oh. I hadn't done that thing in like 10 years. I, you know, something like that. I was like, oh my, I mean, my like, like literally like doing the legs her guy was like shaking but it all worked out I'm happy you know Pilates is a practice I've been exploring for 
20 years. Okay. Um, um, yeah, like Pilates was something that I've always had, like that as a side practice in a way, like I was, I've been practicing it for almost as long as I've been practicing yoga. And then during the pandemic, there was like a Equinox, which I taught already was doing online classes. And I was like, our courses, it was like, yeah, let me do something. Let me learn something. Let me engage also in an online training that I've been teaching so many. Um, it was nice to be a student in one. And like, I really, the training was fantastic. Actually, I was very impressed. And I learned a lot about teaching trainings from that training. Um, and it was a very good training. And I also recognize how much I've always been inspired by the practice too. Like kind of, you know, even though it's like, we're not necessarily doing like the exact movements. I was like, oh, this is where I get that from. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. This is where I get that from. Oh, this makes perfect sense. And it's been a lot of fun. Um, I've been incorporating it in, uh, I have a class that I teach online where it's like kind of a hybrid class of Pilates and Katona and a little bit of flow. And um, yeah, I mean, you know, flow is is really a subjective term. I still sequence things, you know, and there's a build. Um, It's very different than how I used to teach in Lotus in terms of sometimes order and structure. And, you know, the thing about Lotus flow is that you would do go through all the chakras. You did everything, you know, and, and I, you know, I don't think you have to do everything in every class. (laughs) I think you can go be more succinct with certain areas of the class and go deeper. And then, you know, you don't have to do a bunch of forward bends and then, you know, do wheels or it was vice versa. It was back bending before forward bending. I don't even remember <laughs> the sequence of it. Yeah. yeah it's, it's funny. It's almost like, I feel I'm, I'm don't teach Louisville either. And I feel like there is this, like, you kind of have to trust your students that they'll do the other chakras at another time. Sometimes like you don't have to get it all in every class. They'll come, they'll get it at another time. Like life is long. <laughs> yeah. It takes forever, you know? And also it's not so piecemeal like that's too. It's like the, you're always working the whole body in a way, even if Mm -hmm. you're engaging with one piece. Right. So I think that too, we can look at it that way. And, you know, chakras are a different method. It's not, it's not so drastically different from looking at as the body as a house, you know, lower floor is stability, you know, second floor, you're, arms, your torso, your heart and lungs. That's your communal space, right? That's where you receive people. That's your kitchen and your personal shrine and your office. It's where you get things done. And then you have your top floor, which is how you set up personal vision, right? How you set up, you know, thought and vision, um, goals and seeing things through. I mean, seeing things through is also, again, you know, giving it legs, doing the groundwork. So it's always, even though we can divide things, it's always dividing so that the whole becomes more clear. Mm. I like that dividing. So the whole becomes more clear. (laughs) I think that is actually the perfect end to note on and note to end on. Um, Thank you so much. This has been really great. I'm actually so glad I have it recorded just so I can re-listen. And I know (laughs) I guess are going to love it too. Um, can you tell everyone, I know they're going to be interested in your classes. Can you tell everyone where to find you? Yeah, you can find me at marydanayoga.com um, and also on Instagram at marydanayoga. And you can email me at marydana at marydanayoga.com. Right. So it went in out just Mary Dana. It was so fun to talk to you, Rebecca. Thank you for asking me to, to be on your podcast. Of course. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day and safe travels tomorrow. <laughs> Thank you so much. It was nice to see you again. You do. Take Bye. care. Bye. <laughs> I really enjoyed talking to Mary Dana and I hope that you enjoyed listening. Um, you can find out more about her from all of the places she said. Really, just Google Mary Dana Yoga and you'll find ev- everywhere. But all of that will be in the show notes, her Instagram, her website, all of that. And I'm going to include, actually, uh, the classes that she has online. Uh, it's at a studio called The Class. But I'll include a link to her classes online that are Katona Yoga in case you're interested in checking it out. Uh, well, uh, I will see you again one more time before I take off for the holidays. Uh, I think the next... I don't have my calendar in front of me, but I think the next um, 
the next podcast will be December. I forgot the word for a podcast while I'm doing a podcast. Isn't that funny? Anyway, um, uh, the next podcast will be out December 20. So I hope to see you and hear you then. If you would like to be in contact before that, you can find me at Rebecca at Home Bodies Yoga. You can email me there. You can find me on Facebook. You can find me on Instagram. I would love to hear from you, especially if you have any insights about Katoni Yoga or Mary, or anything that Mary Dana and I talked about, the sort of teaching stuff we talked about, or if you want to talk about meditation. I'm always eager to hear, or really anything. I'd love to hear from you. Anyway, uh, happy practicing. Talk soon. Bye.